We are in Exodus chapter 18 this week. And uh, back in June, on Father's Day, I had actually uh, preached quite a bit out of chapter 18 as well because I was talking about Father's Day and talking about Moses and the different men who had the father figure in Moses' life. And so I realized that as I was preparing this week that I had covered a lot of this from that perspective of Jethro being like like the father that Moses never really had because of the way Moses went from being a tiny little guy in his mother's house to being in, the, in Pharaoh's daughter's house. And then here in the um, wilderness, he actually had Jethro, who seems to genuinely care for him and be concerned for him. And there, there, there was a mutual respect that was, that was precious. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through um, Exodus 18, just the entire chapter, and then I'll share some of the thoughts that I had with, um, with various pieces of it. So Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 1. He says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Zipporah, I'm not sure how to say her name, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. This is also something I don't quite know what happened because it says he sent her back. I don't know when she was sent back. Um, I couldn't find any evidence like what part did she, did she go through the Red Sea crossing? Did she, what, did, what happened? Like, I don't know. So I just wanted to point out that I don't know so that you, we can have other conversations about other things. <laughs> All right, verse three says, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into, their t- into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians." Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening, So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. 
Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and work and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. So there are several pieces of, the, of this account that stood out to me. So I'm basically splitting it into three different bits. So first of all, I wanted to talk a bit about Jethro, priest of Midian. So Midian is the fourth son of Abraham and Keturah. And so there is no reason to assume um, like Augustine writes that Jethro was this complete pagan, and I disagree because he's a descendant of Abraham. Abraham sends Keturah and her sons east out of the way so that when the children of Israel come back to the promised land, they shouldn't actually conflict with Midian. And so the Midianites are far enough east, they shouldn't actually have any conflict. Um, but so he is a descendant of Abraham. He is... He is a priest. And when he says in verse 10 that blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, uh, or verse 11, where it says, I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Um, I don't think this was as much of a revelation where you're going, ah, your God is greater. It was more of a confirmation. He said, look what he just did with the Egyptians, because he specifically says in everything that the Egyptians gods are known for, your God, our God was greater than they were. So he, is well, he, is, he seems to be well-versed in what the gods of the nations are and what's happening around him. And so he, to me, when I'm reading that, it's more of an affirmation, a confirmation, a rejoicing with Moses saying, look what God has done, and less of Jethro going, wow, I had no idea. And so when I look at the character of Jethro, because of the fruit of his life, it seems to me that he had a good understanding and relationship with God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in this instance, um, later, so at this point, when we meet Jethro and the Midianites, there has been nothing in the past that has made God pronounce anything against the Midianites. There's no reason that the Midianites should actually be having a battle or fighting against the Israelites. We know from later on that there were quite a few battles. You know, Gideon was fighting against the Midianites. There was, it was notably, the Midianites were coming against the Israelites quite a bit. Um, never, they never quite got the same almost, um, well, if you remember, I think, was it last week when the Amalekites came? Yeah, we were talking about that last week. The Amalekites came and they were ambushing Israel and they got such strong pronouncements from God against them. 
the Midianites never quite got that strong of a pronouncement against God. What happens is we have the Midianites coming over and then you have Moab, who is, um, Moab comes from the firstborn daughter of Lot's, uh, uh, Lot's firstborn daughter and Lot. So Moab, the Moabites, the king is, is Balak. And it doesn't seem that the Midianites have a king at this time when, when they're coming around. And so what happens is that the king of the, Midi, of, the, of, the, of the Moabites and the elders of the Moabites go to the elders of the Midianites and say, hey, can you come with us? We need to go ask Balaam to pronounce a curse. Now, when you read through um, where Balaam is coming from, depending how you read it, you either say, wow, he was, in the, he was some completely separate person way out somewhere, or it says he was in the valley of his people, which seems that he would have been either a Midianite or a Moabite. And it doesn't say, I, I haven't answered that question sufficiently for myself um, to know which one I think that he might have been. But he, he, is, he, is not, he is not a natural enemy of Balak. And it's as if Balak is used to knowing he can hear from the one true God through Balaam. And so when you go and see everything that he speaks out, um, and then you see the activity of the Moabites and the Midianites in the, in the coming years, as, as Israel is trying to go into the promised land and all of that, it seems that Midian had a, an opportunity to bless their brother Israel, so to speak. So you have, you know, because um, you have Isaac and then you have um, Midian, the, you know, but a whole, he's the fourthborn son of Keturah. So there's like all of these children going down. And so now the, the, the descendants of Isaac are coming back into the land. And so as I was considering this, I have two thoughts on this. One is that Midian had an opportunity. He hasn't done anything to be enemies with Israel. He hasn't in a dramatic way made himself be an enemy of God. He is just, in general, the people of Midian at this point can either serve God or serve the gods of the nations, and it, they're blessed or in trouble depending on what they're doing. Um, we don't have too much information about them. We have little glimpses here and there. But here comes their brother Israel now, and they're coming for the promised land. And instead of coming like Jethro and welcoming them and understanding them and help, and actually like Jethro came and feasted with them and, and presented an offering to the Lord, what seems to be on their behalf. And all the son, Aaron and all of his son, the, cho, the elders of Israel came and they ate bread with Moses' father-in-law with Jethro before the Lord. And so there was this opportunity for Midian could have done what Jethro did who was a Midianite, and he could, they could have welcomed Israel in and said, what is God doing? What are you trying? And if they would have understood that, they would have known that Israel is not trying to take their land. But when the Moabites came, they said over in Numbers, they, the Moabites, the elders of Moab came to Midian and said, look, you see this great crowd of people that are coming through the wilderness? They're going to lick up everything in sight. They're going to destroy our lands. We've got to stop them. But they're so big that instead of Moab saying, hey, Midian, take up your weapons, let's go fight, they say, we've got to get someone to curse them. And so they go, they go from, they're taking everything we have, um, not like, let's go defend our land, they're, like, they're too big, let's get a prophet to go curse them. And so Midian, instead of having, taking the opportunity to help and assist and protect 
his brother, instead chooses to curse him. And so this is, a, this is, I think, something that we can take and just consider. Sometimes someone else has a calling, and as they're finding their path to their calling, we might feel threatened for various reasons, or we might feel like they're doing it wrong or whatever. And we have a choice of either helping them fulfill their life calling, or we can choose to kind of stand back and either scoff or curse the work that they're doing. And I think it's a good consideration to have. So that was one of the considerations. Now, so, so Midian had an opportunity to bless his brother's children, but instead he chose to curse. But then I switched it around and said, well, look at this. If Israel would have had the faith that they needed and obeyed God when he told them to, their path would not have intersected with Midian. They would have just gone straight up through the enemies of God, the, Phil- the Philistines and several other people, and they would have gone to the promised land, and they could have just gone and done it. And they wouldn't, would not have had to make enemies the way they did. And so the other way of phrasing the question is to say something like, occasionally, and so let's just use it with Israel, lack of faith on Israel's part caused them to respond with fear, anxiety, and kind of a strange irregularity, like it didn't make sense. If you're going from point A to point B, why would you go to A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, and all the other places first before you just go up there? Because that's what they did. They literally went in the wilderness, went in circles, went all kinds of places. And so if you're just observing them, you're not seeing, oh, it makes sense. They're going from Egypt and they're going right here to the promised land. It, didn't, it wasn't clear what their mission was. And so it is possible that the lack of faith on Israel's part caused not only fear and anxiety in the people around them, but also confusion and misunderstanding. And, and then the very people around them that would have believed in their God, like Midian and Israel, should have been brothers because of the whole Abraham and Keturah thing. Abraham had actually thought ahead and said, I'm going to put the children, the sons of Keturah far enough east so that when, when you come back, and you take over the land, you're not fighting your brothers. Like Abram actually thought ahead and, and moved them over there. And so they should have been out of the way. So it's possible that as my lack of faith is keeping me from walking toward the ministry and the calling that God has for me, that the things I do while I'm demonstrating my lack of faith and while I'm being uncertain, that that might be so confusing and actually cause other believers around me to oppose something that God wants to do because they don't understand the process by which I'm doing it. So these are just two thoughts. One is if you see someone else and they seem to be lost in the wilderness, don't assume that their life story is done. Find out from them what is God doing, where are they trying to go, and maybe you can be of assistance. Maybe you can be an ally. Maybe you can encourage them and help them. At the same time, if God has called you to do something, don't be afraid to just walk straight toward it. Even if it seems impossible, don't be afraid to say, well, Lord, this is what you asked me to do. Let's do it. And as you start walking, you'll see the, the doors opening and the gates opening. Uh, you know, an example of this in my life is that I spent at least a decade, if not more, 
where people would say, weren't you going to do something with film? And I'd be like, well, yeah, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. You know, my sister would be like, well, aren't you called? Like, didn't God call you to do this? And I'd be like, well, you know, yes, but I, I did this. And I, I don't know. And so what was fascinating about it was when I said, yes, God has called me to do this and just started doing something, it wasn't the end. I, like, the thing I was doing at the time was not the end product, but it was something. It was a step. It was a seed that I planted. It was obedience. And when I started that, so many other things just started happening. And so since then, I haven't had to tell people, oh yeah, God called me to film. I know I'm not doing anything with it, but you know, he called me. Um, I'm not having to do that. I, they see that God has called me in film. They see that I'm doing something in film. They will actually come and ask me how to get into filmmaking. Um, and sometimes I have good counsel and sometimes I don't um, based on what their situation is. I don't always know how to answer, but the marvel to me is when I started walking and actually doing things, how much God poured out a blessing and opened doors and closed doors and, and moved me forward in a, in a very, very um, substantial way. Like it was not just a, it was a very tangible thing. It was not just a, oh, maybe, maybe not. It was so clear that it wasn't not only clear to me, but it was clear to others that this is what I was supposed to be doing. So I think this is part of, of what Israel needed. Like the, Moses knew and the, the elders kind of knew what they were supposed to be doing, but it wasn't clear to the nations around them what they were doing. It didn't make sense. It looked like confusion. And so while the camp was orderly and the tabernacle was in the middle and God was obviously with them because of the Red Sea crossing and all of these other things, the nations around were very confused as to what the purpose of this thing is. And so I think this is always going to be the case. You're going to look around you. You're so going to see all the people of the kingdom and some of their lives you can see very clearly that they understand what their calling is and they're walking toward it. And other people, you'll be like, what is that? Because it just is like this cyclone going in circles and it doesn't seem to make sense. And you can't decide, are they going this way or are they going that way? Are, what, are, what are they supposed to be doing? And so the challenge for us in that is when it's us, to say, no, Lord, I don't want to just walk in circles in the wilderness. I want to know what is your next step for me? Can I obey that? And I want to obey that so that there is direction in my life so that the people around me can be encouraged to say, ah, he's obeying the Lord. I should be obeying the Lord. But then if we are the people who are watching the cyclone of confusion, then we might extend extra grace and say, how can I help them? What are they trying to do? And sometimes when you ask a fellow, you know, a, a traveler on the journey and you just say, what, what has God called you to do? In the process of them trying to explain it to you, they will finally explain it to themselves in a way that they understand. And so it's worth asking. If you just see someone, you're like, I have no idea. Um, it's worth asking and finding out what, can you quantify what God has called you to do? Because I don't care which part of Christianity you're from, there are some kind of code words or church language that you can use to cover the fact that, yeah, I've been called by God. Yep, all that. Um, and, and you don't have to say, I have no idea. Like most people don't have to say that. They can say, well, you know, God has called me. And, and you can use words that sound good that really mean, I have no idea. 
I'm confused. I don't know where I'm going, but it sounds good. And so you can give that answer. So if someone walks with you long enough, they're like, are you really for sure that you know what you're doing? So it's good to ask each other. So those were two of the points. Uh, is choosing to bless instead of to curse. Um, and what I find fascinating with that is like with, with both Midian and Moab, they weren't going, oh yeah, oh yeah, we've got the exact curse we need for this people. They were like, they had to hire someone to go curse to curse because they didn't know how to do this. And so they're like, let's get this man of God because what he says happens. So let's get him to go up there and say something. And so they do this and it's just, it's, it's, there's probably more in there that we could learn from, but I, I just wanted to mention those two things in passing. And then we come to the actual life of Moses and Jethro. So here's where we get uh, Moses explaining why he named his children what he did, um, explaining some more of the relationship between him and his father-in-law. And so this is going back to that Father's Day message in, on June the 19th. It's, a, it's on YouTube and on the church website um, if you wanted to revisit that because it spent quite a bit of time here in Exodus 18. And so you see more of the character of Moses as a family man showing up in this than you do the rest of the time. You, we see Moses as a leader of the people. One of the things that I did realize as I was looking at this is that part of Moses' frustration with all the people is if you think of being alone in the wilderness with sheep and then you have like your interactions, your social interactions are with your wife and with an understanding father-in-law and then you go from that to 600,000 men and everyone's looking at you and blaming you for everything. Like, I'm just suddenly like, I bet you Moses was an introvert and, and this took a lot. And so part of his frustration with the people, I'm, I have no evidence for this. This is just me thinking through the, the amount of pain and dying to himself he had to go through to go from the quietness of the wilderness to suddenly being back in the wilderness. But instead of sheep, they're all talking back to him and they're all out there. They all have ideas and thoughts and, and, and things and, and he's trying to lead. And so you don't see much of that here other than he is having to deal with all of the, the people. And what's happening here is that there's a common error that can happen. It's where you see wisdom in a leader or someone else like Moses. And so you assume that he is the source of wisdom for not just what he's doing, but for what you're doing and for what your neighbor's doing and everyone else. So they're all coming to Moses saying, well, you obviously hear from God. You, you know, you're not doing all the crazy things we keep doing wrong. You're doing the right thing. You're believing. And so they come to Moses and he's answering all the little bitty questions. Even things that have got to be frustrating to Moses where he's like, for real? Like, no, don't do that. Like, you know, I, I don't know what the scenarios were, but I can just imagine things like this, you know? So there's all the tents, they're all set out. And then the manna comes every morning. They're supposed to gather enough manna for the next day. If they gather too, for that day, if they gather too much, um, it rots and stinks, right? And so like, I can just imagine that the one family is like really upset because the family next to them always keeps too much manna and leaves it right outside their door and it stinks up the whole place. Like it's stuff like that that I'm thinking they're bringing that to Moses and they're going, ah, nah, 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 and they're just bringing every little possible, anything that can go wrong in a camping trip is multiplied and they're having to deal with it. And so he's dealing with all of this. And so what Jethro is saying is, look, these people aren't dumb. In fact, they should be able to hear from God. And so if there's huge issues, sure, you deal with that. But shouldn't they be able to take care of some of their own problems? 
And he's correct in asking this. And I like how he says it in verse 23. He says, if you do this thing and God so commands you, so he puts that in there. He's going, I'm giving you counsel. And if you think this is what God wants you to do, then do it and it'll help. And so Moses does it and it does help. And so between these two men, with Moses and Jethro, we have a genuine honor and a respect between them. There, is, there seems to be an affectionate, caring relationship where they actually care about how they're doing. They actually care to know, how are you? And it's not just a, oh, look, you're here again. Okay. But it's an actual caring relationship. And then Moses actually listens to wisdom. He honored Jethro. He could have said, look, I am the chosen leader here. God put me here. I am going to do what God has called me to do. If it kills me, I'm going to make sure I lead these people and these people. I mean, Jethro, if you knew, they're like, they're dumb as rocks. The questions they ask me, someone has to tell them. I don't think they can make any decisions on their own. Like he could have, he could have gone down that path, but he doesn't. He says, oh, okay. And so they do the whole process. And so they actually have now the men of the camp having to think about what they're doing. And so this, is, this, this actually has applications. Um, just in church fellowship, for instance, growing up, we had rules for so many things. And so if there was anybody not towing the line, you could go to the leaders and say, eh, I saw this on Thursday, you know? And, you could, and so there was something you could do. And so no one was thinking for themselves. In fact, thinking for yourself was a problem. And so it's not just the Amish that do that, but there's a lot of different ways that uh, Christianity has gone into these little side eddies where instead of truly flowing with the living water, people are just stuck and they're, they're stuck with either one leader or one set of rules or one thing, and they're just trying to, to and nobody's thinking, nobody's seeking the Lord for themselves. And so it, it requires a lot of responsibility and freedom to truly serve the Lord. So we need to actually come out from where everything is prescribed and where someone else is telling us everything we need to do or where we're telling someone else everything, and we need to be able to come out and say, okay, so I'm having this issue, and then we seek the Lord. And we search out the scripture and we learn how to walk with one another in love and in good works. This is what we need. And so in order to get that, there has to be a genuine humility on any one of us who has any kind of a leadership position. We have to understand that God can actually speak to someone else without having to go through us. So Moses is correct in that he is the one that God speaks to for the big things, the direction for Israel. But at the same time, each one of these people is capable to look at a situation and say, this would not be pleasing to God. This would be pleasing to God. This is the wrong way to treat my neighbor. This is the right way to treat my neighbor. And so every one of them is capable of figuring that out and they need to do that. And so when Moses says, you're right, he steps back in a sense and it opens the door for all of these other people to actively participate in what they're doing. And so I genuinely think that it caused, there was less rebellion than there would have been if that had not been opened up to the people. If they would not, because it gave them ownership. They were saying, this is what we do. This is what we're doing. This is how we respond. This is how we work together. Um, you know, when, when the cloud moves and the, the sons of Aaron are taking up the tabernacle and getting ready to, to travel. This is how we're going to make that work. This is how we're not going to, to trample each other. This is how we're going to. And so they were owning a lot of the process of what was going to happen in the wilderness. 
And we need that. In the church, we need that. We need to each of us be owning our part of the faith. We all have a part. And so Moses, by listening to wisdom, he not only honored Jethro, but he actually honored all the people as well. And he honored God in this. And so in, in thinking about that, I was thinking about us and our response. And um, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, you know, from our vantage point, honestly, over the years, if, if we tell, uh, if we talk about the apostle Peter and every, his relationship with Jesus, like most of us, if, if people would have come in and said, hey, you know, Peter, he is the supreme leader of the Christian faith and what he says goes and he can do whatever he wants, um, we would be like, well, yeah, he was with Jesus all that time, okay. And like we could literally have been sold that bill of goods and be like, oh, whatever. But because we read the scripture and because of how it was reported to us, we understand Jesus said that the, that the, rulers, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but it's not supposed to be that way among you. You need to choose humility. You need to serve one another. And because the apostles modeled that and wrote it, um, since that time, there have been many, many uh, places and organizations within Christianity that have tried to adopt the whole supreme leader thing where somebody or someone is, is the one who gets to make all the decisions. But any time that the people step out and say, wait a minute, is this what God really? No, this is not what God wants. God doesn't want one man with his thumb on everything. He actually expects all of us to be hearing from God and doing something, and we have our parts. And so Peter, in writing this, so he's going through, he's actually exhorting the elders. So this is in, in the first part of the verse. He's talking that, to them how to shepherd the flock of God. And then he comes to verse five. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So right there is always this moment where he says, younger people submit to your elders. We can kind of all nod our head and like, yep, that's right. And then he goes and says, all of you submit to one another. And you're like, wait, what do you mean by submit? Like, are you telling me that I have to like go grovel somewhere? And that's not what he's talking about. Am I supposed to serve everybody? Well, maybe, but that's also not what he's talking about. The submission here is an understanding that, because he continues and he says, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so God resists the proud. If Moses would have insisted that he is the supreme leader of the Israelites, I am going to do this thing, he would never have listened to Jethro. He's like, Jethro, you weren't there when God opened the Red Sea for us. You should have seen that. And you know what I did? I just, I did this and God did it. You should have been there. <laughs> and, but he didn't. He actually listens to Jethro. So he's humbling himself and he's going, okay. And so he's learning from this. And so with this idea that Peter is saying that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, one of the things that happens when we're submitting to one another, it's not that I'm trying to literally go to each of you and say, your wish is my command, what do you want me to do? It's more of an understanding that you can hear from God. You can hear from God and that you're going to be serving God and I'm going to be serving God 
And there's times when God has already assigned you to an area or to a space and you're doing something. And when I show up, I am not the fount of wisdom showing up. I am one more servant of the kingdom showing up. And I come in and I see what God has already been doing. And I walk alongside with you and I can hear your voice because I am not the only person that can hear from God. And so what's happening right now in the, um, as, as, as there's been a, an over, um, I, I want to say like three things at once. So let me see if I can do this correctly. Okay, so as in the American churches, there's been a lot of control issues we've had. We've had a lot of times when pastors and leaders have, and, and dads in homes and stuff, instead of lovingly nurturing and leading and training their, the people under them to the, you can hear from God and this is how you walk pleasing to God, it's been more of a control, 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 control thing. So as we break free from that, a very necessary and important um, lesson is is this. And one of the, the ladies that we interviewed earlier this year, she said this as we, we just, at the end of the interviews, we said, is there something that you would like to say if you could go back and either talk to a younger version of you or to someone who's still in the culture where you were, what would you want to tell them? And one of the things she said, she looked into the camera and she said, um, the Holy Spirit is not any smaller in you than he is in someone else. God is the same size for each of us. And you can hear from God just as much as the next guy. And so this is a correction from, I don't know if we can do this because I don't know what we believe. I have to wait and see what our supreme leader will say. And so there's, there are certain jurisdictions and things, like if at my house, you can't sit at your house and make rules for my house but neither can I sit in my house and make rules for your house. We both hear from God for our houses and how our houses run. It's not that one or the other has more authority. We each have our jurisdictions. And so when we come together and we're in the fellowship, it's not that only one or two of us can hear from God. We can all hear from God. Now, what can happen with that, and, and this is what we're seeing right now, is as we're trying to correct some of these issues in the church at large, then what happens is it goes from, I don't have to only hear from God through someone else, that that's not God's design. I can actually hear from God myself to suddenly it becomes to, I have a Twitter account and I have heard from God and all of y'all are wrong. And it goes from that to that to that pretty quickly. And so you don't want to go there either. You don't want to go like, I am the only person and then in 240 characters, I will correct the world one day at a time. You know, you, you, you have to actually find a middle ground where you understand, yes, God is in me and he's speaking through me. And yes, God is in you and he's speaking through you. And all of this together, as we come and we learn how to submit to one another, that is us being able to see God's hand working in someone else and we get to experience that. So if, if what, what I love here in 1 Peter 5 is verse 6. This verse, it says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So this idea is that I humble myself under the mighty hand of God. He actually knows when the word that I have is needed by the people around me. And so I might humble myself and listen to this word from Jethro and then this word from Moses and this word from the elders and I'm just listening and listening and listening and then there comes the day when Moses looks at Joshua and says, Joshua, it's your time. 
And God says, yeah, I'm going to establish you. And so suddenly Joshua has been listening, 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 and submitting and submitting and doing what he's been told. And he steps in and he's the next person in due time. But now he knows that somewhere in his young ranks, there's someone else who's, who's going to be leading next. And so if we have that understanding where I'm humbling myself, and it's not that I'm groveling, and this is something that is often misunderstood about how to submit one another. We're not saying make yourself a carpet and just, just completely defile yourself in the mud. It's not that. It's saying, I see God in you. And part of me honoring and serving and respecting my God is that I'm going to honor and serve and respect him in you and in your role and what you're doing. And so this is suddenly not about, am I more important than you? Do I have more responsibility than you? It's not that. It's you have some, I have some. And we share and we come together and we, in humility, can hear from each other and learn from one another and walk together in the kingdom. And I love the, the follow-up verses because in verse seven, there he says, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Do you know how many things I have to care about if I think I am the supreme leader or if I am the one for the hour and, I, and, and suddenly I have to make sure this and that and there's all this. But if, if I can cast all my cares on the Lord because he is going to speak through us. He is going to work through us. I don't have to think I am the only one. So I can cast my cares on him. Verse eight, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But, and here's the blessing from the apostle Peter. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so this is what we're doing. We're actually serving the king of a kingdom. He is working, and he's not just working in our nation. He's working around the world. He's doing so many things. And not one of us is the only one that has the message of God for the nations. We all share it. And so the humility that I see in Jethro and Moses springs out of the fact that when Jethro comes and says, God is God. And he says, I'm going to bring an offering. And all the priests of Israel and the elders of Israel come and he offers an offering and they have a feast together. And God doesn't say, oh, Jethro, that was wrong fire. He doesn't do that. Moses doesn't kick, like, they come and they together worship the Lord. And it's somewhat of a mystery to me to think that here is Jethro in the backside of the wilderness, seemingly somewhat separated from the rest of the Midianites. And he is serving God in such a way that God receives his offering in the congregation of the Israelites. And that Moses listens to his wisdom and then Jethro goes back and Moses goes on with the Israelites. But there is a, a mutual understanding, not because Jethro was so great or because Moses was so great, but because God was so great and they together were serving him. And so I have my, my three thoughts that I had for today was the first one, just looking at um, the way the Midianites responded to Israel. 
when you see someone else who obviously has God with them, but they seem quite confused, don't hire someone to curse them and don't curse them yourself, but find out how you can ally with them. How can you encourage them? Is there a way to help them get to their promised land? Because the Midianites could have been a huge ally in that. If you are the person who has a calling and God has told you to do something, uh, and this goes back to an other, earlier message where we talked about how getting out of Egypt is not the same as getting into the promised land. So when God first calls you and you start following him, just because you've gotten rid of one thing or you've done one thing, don't assume that you've arrived where God wants you. He has something more for you. And as long as we're on this earth, there's always something that God is saving us to and wanting to bring us into, and we can approach that. And so that's what we want. We don't want to get stuck in the wilderness circling. And so, because of, literally, that creates confusion for other believers and other people around us. And it's not, it's, anything you experience in the Christian faith is never only about you. It's always going to affect people around you. So if you're walking in faith, it will encourage people around you. If you're walking in doubt, it's going to discourage people around you. It's just always the case. So don't assume that it's all about you, but assume that it's actually all about Christ and what he wants. And so when he calls you to do something, even if it's insurmountable and impossible, start walking. And I think um, from a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Evan was sharing at the shared service, that you know, Mary's response to the angel, according to your word, let it be to me, that's what we're really after. So that was my second one. And then the third one was just simply this, that we should humble ourselves before God, understanding that he is at work in all of us. And together, we, as a people, his people, can hear from him. We can, we can actually provide correction for each other, direction for each other, and we can learn from one another, and it can be a huge blessing for the kingdom. But humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due season, he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how much you have called us, each of us, and given us an opportunity to walk with you. And Lord, you love each of us uniquely. You call each of us uniquely. And yet, you also have something you're doing through all of us together. And not just here in this building, but throughout the nations your people, we are all hearing from you. And as we walk with you, we learn your heart and the heartbeat of God in response to those who are needing to be rescued, those who are being oppressed, those, all of the needs that are around the world, Lord, you use your people to meet that. And we are one small part of it. And I thank you that you're not any smaller here than you are in China. You're not any smaller here in our midst than you are in some house, church, in Baghdad. But Lord, you are powerful. And you are God everywhere. And thank you that because of the work of Christ, you've poured out your spirit upon all the earth and that we can expect to not only hear from you, but to know you and to walk with you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.